May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Today, I am joined by an old friend and colleague who I haven't seen in many years, but uh, Ian Rosenberg is with us. Hello, Ian. Hi, Rich. Good to be here. Ian has written and published a great book called The Fight for Free Speech, subtitled 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms, which I have read cover to cover. Thank you. Well, I, I, you got to prepare, Ian. You, know, you, can't just, <laughs> you can't just do these things willy-nilly. I will tell the audience that it's a great book. It's very accessible to understand 10 of the most prominent First Amendment cases, I guess, in the last century, right? They, yeah. they really come out 1900s. So let me start with this, Ian. We'll get a little bit into some of the discussion in the book. What prompted you to do this? Well, uh, a couple of things. The most personal was that I was having a conversation with my kids at the dinner table around the time of the National School Walkout, and they were uh, at the ages uh, then of about 12 and 10, and they were both very interested in participating in the walkout and wanted to know what their free speech and First Amendment rights were about what would happen if they walked out and could they get in trouble and and sort of engaging in, in dissent. And I realized that sort of my 20-year career being a media lawyer, that I had always been talking to mostly non-lawyers about complicated issues. But in talking with them, I really, it hit home that I could talk about serious issues and really could convey the wisdom of the past Supreme Court cases and do that in a way that would condense wisdom, but that would not be dumbing things down. So as I was saying, I work at ABC News and I've been explaining free speech issues to producers and correspondents and journalists my whole career. And I know that you don't have to have jargon and academic theory to make our contemporary free speech questions and the cases behind them understandable or exciting and interesting. So that was the goal, was to write a user's guide to free speech that would take contemporary questions. As you know, each chapter begins with a contemporary question from National School Walkout Day or Nazis marching in Charlottesville or can Colin Kaepernick take a knee? And then traces the key Supreme Court case that answers those questions by following the people who fought for their right to free speech all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I hope that this is a tool for understanding of our free speech rights and really enables people on a grassroots way to advocate for free speech every day. Well, I think that's a great endeavor. As an attorney, it seems to me that a lot of people have deference on legal issues or have shown deference on legal issues. To me, they'll say, well, you're the lawyer, you would know. But on the First Amendment, I find that everybody thinks they're an expert. People think they know the First Amendment, they understand what it means. And a lot of times it's not the case. Do you find that to be true as well? What I love about that is that everyone feels a sort of connection to the First Amendment. There's not a lot of other areas of law where people will feel a bond with tort law or contract law or something. But I do think that people are confused often about what their free speech rights mean. And that's another reason I wrote this book. And to be honest, there are very few places to turn to if you are a smart person who wants to sort of learn about free speech relatively quickly without going to law school. You know, there, there are 
are a number of books written about it and, and some classics in the field, but like the memoir from our old mentor, Floyd Abrams. But that was written, you know, over a decade ago. Most of the books, uh, other books are either very opinionated at somebody saying, this is my take on the First Amendment, or they're very academic and, and to be honest, even hard for me to get through. So I think there are a few options for people to clarify their free speech rights. And I hope that the fight for free speech provides people with that crash course that they need. I actually wrote it back when travel was possible, thinking that somebody could you know, pick it up at the airport, read it on the plane, and then by the time they were done, really know about free speech. So uh, that's the goal, even if travel is still relevant. Limited. Uh, well, you can you can read it on your couch instead of on a That's plane, right. or maybe soon on a plane. You mentioned Floyd Abrams, who of course is one of the prominent First Amendment litigators in our lifetime and maybe of all time. And you and I know him a little bit because we both started our legal careers at his law firm, Cahill Gordon and Rindell, which is how we know each other. And is that where you got your start really practicing in this area? Oh, yeah. I was a, a summer associate at Cahill and then clerked in the Eastern District uh, of New York for a federal judge in Brooklyn and then went back to Cahill. And then other than at Cahill, I've been at ABC News as a pre-broadcast counsel on, on libel and FCC issues, uh, as well as intellectual property for the last 18 years. So uh, my training was in the courts and with Floyd and then now, uh, you know, every day with uh, my journalist colleagues at ABC News. We mentioned misperceptions about the First Amendment. What are some of the common confusions or misperceptions about the First Amendment that you've encountered that you've sought to clarify in your work? Yeah, I, I think the most common misperception is actually the, the simplest, and it's a, a running, simplest to understand correctly, and it's a running theme in my book, which is that essentially all of our free speech rights are about protecting us from interference from the government. So government restrictions on speech are what are almost always prohibited or severely limited in some way. But that does not mean then that employers can't control what their employees say. And it also doesn't mean that, you know, you sort of have a free speech right to be on any platform. So there, you know, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen has a great phrase that I take that is freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. So just because you have a free speech right to say something doesn't mean you have a right to say it everywhere. But I think that the most common one is, is that people don't focus on the sort of preventing government interference. So that's when people say, how can Twitter restrict the president of the United States from being on their platform? It's because, as you know, that they are a private company and therefore they don't have to abide by the First Amendment. And so what the government might be prohibited from doing is not necessarily applied to private companies. And in, in most cases, it does not. I handled a matter very recently for a senior level employee of a company I won't name who was essentially terminated for things he had tweeted and things he had tweeted some time ago, like five years ago that some people in his company found and took objection to. And it, it ultimately led to him being removed from the company. And that on those thin facts I've just given you would not be a violation of the Constitution, right? Because it's a private company. 
It, it would not. And, uh, you know, I talk about in one of the chapters of the book, the contemporary issue I talk about is the woman who flipped the bird at President Trump's motorcade, you know, didn't realize that she was being photographed. The photograph went viral and she was later fired from her employment and, and she sued them over that termination and lost. So that is an example where, yes, the employer was allowed to terminate her because of her expressive conduct. But, you know, I I say that the story doesn't end there. I talk about the case of Cohen versus California and basically the right to offend a man who wore a jacket that said, I uh, feel like I can curse here, correct? Sure. Well, I I hope in a podcast about the First Amendment will allow some cursing. Yeah, well, we're not regulated here by the FCC, so which is another chapter in my book, but he wore on his jacket during the Vietnam War, it said, fuck the draft. In that case, he was threatened with a month of jail time for um, disorderly conduct, convicted, and was threatened with that while his appeal was pending, goes up to the Supreme Court, and in a beautiful uh, decision, the court holds that one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. So that's a great case and a great story. It does show that there is a right to offend, but that your employer and and a right to essentially curse visually or orally, but that doesn't mean that your employer can't stop you. So that is an important distinction. And and it's a theme. Uh, Also, I talk about Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee. And while the NFL essentially can control the rights of their employees, that doesn't mean, again, that the conversation should end there. There's both sort of our free speech principles that we can talk about. And in the Kaepernick case, the right to not speak does apply to student athletes in public schools. So it really depends on the context, of course, but what one employee might not be able to do, somebody else in a public school context or just in a out in society context um, might indeed have that right. And, and hopefully the fight for free speech starts making those things clear through the stories I tell. What I love about the book is that you give the background of these case stories, right? You tell the story about Colin Kaepernick. You tell the story about Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. You tell the story about George Carlin and the Seven Dirty Words, which is another chapter I particularly enjoyed. You tell the story about the fuck the draft pen, and you tell the story about the woman who was eventually fired for flipping the bird, and you give a lot of context to when those things happened, what was going on, and you even in tell a little bit about what happened after the Supreme Court ruled, which I really like in terms of understanding how those cases fit into what's gone on in this country in the past decades. Well, th- thank you. I mean, I find all that sort of narrative about these stories fascinating, and, and I learned the details mostly in, in the course of researching this book. As you know, in law practice and certainly in law school, you, you learn a very brief amount about the facts of a case, only enough to sort of understand the ruling, but you don't hear who they are as people. And I'm very interested in showing off how Some of the times we're talking about the major players of free speech law, the New York Times or the president of the United States, be it Trump or Nixon. But most of the time we're talking about very interesting, ordinary people, ordinary meaning not famous, not lawyers, not journalists, people who just for one reason or another, sometimes students, sometimes school children, who really had a something they believed in passionately and wanted to express that right. So thank you for pointing that up. That was one of my favorite experiences in the book is telling those stories which I think are not only interesting, but give greater context, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. They help you understand the cases. And just to tie up the loop on the woman who gave the finger to the Trump motorcade, you know, the difference is, right, 
if the police had arrested her for doing that, that is arguably a First Amendment violation. But her employer firing her for seeing a picture of it on Twitter is not a First Amendment violation. Am I essentially correct the way I phrase that? You're entirely correct. That is the kind of thing I hope people can now do after reading this book, is that, you know, I I did pick 10 contemporary issues, both to answer those questions and and to make it feel very relevant and uh, about what we're talking about today. But I also hope that most people who aren't lawyers don't necessarily compare facts and incidents than to case law. And so I'm trying to sort of sneak in some legal education there about how you can now, once you sort of know these building blocks of principles, you can apply them to different contexts. So exactly right. If she had been arrested, then that would be the government taking action against her for her expressive work. She could use the Cohen versus California case, among others, to say that she has a right to offend, a right even in public to express her dissent or or, her, or to curse, she would have a very strong case, I would say, an absolutely winnable case to fight against that type of criminal action against her. Let's talk, if you don't mind, for a couple minutes about social media, because that seems to me like the Wild West of free speech in a way. We have this concept that you talk about beautifully in the book about the town square being the place where you have to most aggressively protect speech because you're supposed to be able to access your fellow citizens in the town square in a way that maybe is different from what you do at a workplace or or at home. And is social media now the town square? Uh, I think the Supreme Court absolutely thinks it is. So my book, as you were saying earlier, it begins in 1919 with our our first, really the first free speech case, Abrams, which introduced the concept of the marketplace of ideas. And then the last case I discuss in my book is 2017, Packingham, which we can get into in a minute, but it's the Supreme Court's first and only significant discussion of, of social media and speech. And As usual, the Supreme Court's a little late to the game, but Justice Kennedy, as you were alluding to, certainly believes, uh, and the majority certainly believed uh, in that case, that social media today is the equivalent of a town crier on steroids. It's the idea of the public square or the public forum or the public park brought to cyberspace. And I, I do think that the Supreme Court, even with the change makeup since 2017, will continue to believe that in general, you know, that's always a caveat, but but in general, the social media is the equivalent of the town square and therefore should be protected the way that speech is generally protected. So one of the concepts in the, in the end of that chapter I get into is that should we as citizens look at social media as the same as sort of traditional media or as different? And if it's the same, meaning books, movies, television, the press, TV news, then it gets sort of very high degrees of protection. And if it's different because this is a new technology and it's somehow more pervasive or something, then perhaps protections can be limited. But I think the Supreme Court will be very reluctant to restrict individuals' access to social media. And that was the case in Packingham. A sex offender was on Facebook actually crowing about beating a parking ticket and he was arrested and charged under a North Carolina law that prohibited any um, former sex offenders from having any access whatsoever to social media. It didn't matter if you were interacting with minors or not. And the court held that that was just too broad, that we cannot limit that much of a vital component of modern day speech, even for 
perhaps not uh, wonderful plaintiffs. So yes, I, I believe that where we are today is that the court is going to be very protective of speech rights online, but that, you know, that doesn't, again, once again, that's not the end of the conversation in terms of there's obviously a lot of social media problems that we as a society may want to address. I just don't think that the First Amendment is going to be an effective tool for doing so. Right. And the case you mentioned, notably in the tie it back to our earlier conversation, involves a government restriction on an individual's ability to be on social media. It does not involve social media platform kicking somebody off, which is, again, not government action, right? That's right. That's the key distinction. And and certainly, you know, in talking about the book, which happened after I, I wrote it, but since it's been released, you know, everyone's been talking about, about Trump being deplatformed and about other, you know, and since then uh, about people who had false speech about the elections, claiming that uh, the elections um, weren't valid and fair and, and false speech, you know, uh, certainly engaging in the riot at the Capitol. So that speech has been somewhat limited by social media platforms, and they, one, they are allowed to do that, two, because they are private companies and they do not have to abide by the First Amendment, they're different from the government, and two, because as private companies, they do have speech rights themselves, and they are, in fact, expressing their speech rights to a degree by how they control people on their platforms. And so that is a key distinction um, and um, one that I think is, is entirely constitutionally permissible. All right. So what's next for you? I hear you're, you're still working at ABC. Yes. And uh, you have this book out. Do you have plans to do more with the book? Uh, yes. Well, one exciting thing that's coming out in November is that there's going to be a graphic novel adaptation of the fight for free speech. It's called Free Speech Handbook, and it's coming from Macmillan for Second, their graphic novel imprint. They have a great series there called World Citizen Comics that is basically a series of graphic novels for adults on basically civics matters. And out right now is a graphic novel adaptation of Dan Rather's memoir. And we are next up. It's illustrated by an amazing artist named Mike Cavallaro. And again, it's called Free Speech Handbook, and it's going to be out in November from Macmillan, November 2nd on Election Day. I saw a little preview of it. It looks super cool. I can't wait to see the whole thing. Thanks. You also have a website up and running. Am I right about yes. that? The fightforfreespeech.com is where you can read more about the book and about me. And so also you can follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Free Speech Book. And uh, on social, I'm also talking about free speech issues and curating other smart people's thoughts about free speech issues. So those are worth checking out as well. I would tell you, there's one story in the book, and it takes us back to Floyd Abrams that I really love, Is uh, and it has not much to do with the law. It's the story about how he came to represent the New York Times, essentially that the Times was dumped by its longtime big law firm lawyer, right? Yes, Lord Day and Lord. Could there be a more big firm law name? I, I don't think so. And yeah, I, I'd say that the equivalent of that is like really like being left at the altar. I, I want to convey to people how, you know, how extreme it is for any law firm to let go of a client and particularly to let go of a client like the New York Times that they had essentially represented since since the paper's origin. And that was to show how shocking, you know, today we sort of take leaks and the news media's right to, to publish leaks and, and people to receive that information as almost commonplace. But at the time of the Pentagon Papers, it was considered so radical that, yes, uh, the Times' old law firm dumped them. 
And I can't remember if I put it in the book, but I remember at one point Floyd told us a story about how somebody at Cahill, when he was representing the Times of Independent on Papers case, said something like, how does it feel to represent traitors? So it was extreme. And we have Floyd and the Supreme Court to thank for ruling that even for top secret government documents, even during an ongoing war and conflict, that prior restraints against the media by the government are essentially always unconstitutional unless there's going to be direct, imminent and, and significant harm. It's a, you know, obviously a critically important First Amendment case, but I also like it because it's a great story about lawyering that Floyd, who was at the time a young lawyer, stepped in to defend the New York Times in this critical case, went to the Supreme Court, won a victory, and really changed his trajectory and his career. And that's what set him on his path. Absolutely. And it's remarkable that the legendary First Amendment lawyer of our time basically got a, like, you know, a midnight phone call and had been representing the Times on a, a smaller matter previously. And I do say in the book, he, he talks about how he spoke with the, the confidence of, of somebody who doesn't have a client when he said, of course, this is unconstitutional to have Nixon try and stop the Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers, uh, and then realized that he and Bikel, who was a, a law professor who were going to be defending the Times, that he had never been in court, he had been in court, but not been before the Supreme Court. He had a law professor who rarely argued, and the law wasn't so clear. So it was not only a transformation for Floyd's uh, career, but yes, but for free speech law and freedom of the press. And I hope it goes without saying, but maybe I will to say that another reason why I wrote this book is to defend the press and that we've heard a lot over the last four years about the media being the enemy of the people. I certainly think that is far from the truth. I'm not objective since I work at ABC News, but I do see firsthand how hard ABC and other mainstream journalists work to, to get the truth right. And that's another story I tell is what our libel standards are and, and Trump's false claims that the media can lie and get away with it are, are not true. All right. Well, we usually end these episodes with a closing argument. Maybe you just made it. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to add anything as a takeaway for our listeners who are thinking about your book and thinking about the First Amendment? Well, you know, I'll, since we're ending, I'll start how I actually begin the book, which is a quote from the Cohen versus California case that we talk about, Justice Harlan. And I really do think it speaks to a lot of things that we're talking about. He says that the constitutional right of free expression is powerful medicine in a society as diverse and populous as ours. It is designed and intended to remove governmental restraints from the arena of public discussion, putting the decision as to what views shall be voiced largely into the hands of each of us. So our free speech rights are largely in our own hands. And I hope that the fight for free speech gives people the tools they need to advocate for free speech and to make good free speech choices in our lives and in society today. All right, Ian Rosenberg, it was great to read. It was great to talk to you about, and uh, it was great to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on. This has really been fun. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, and thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing 
who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.